Rory Sutherland, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today in our leadership seminars. Yours is entitled Life Lessons from One of Ad's Leading Men. You're an advertarian. You began by talking about your interest in behavioural economics. Why? Interestingly, I knew nothing about economics. I mean, absolutely less than nothing until about five years ago and happened to read a series of, frankly, quite popularist but very, very good books uh, by variously Tim Harford, uh, by Tyler Cowan, a very good book called uh, Discover Your Inner Economist, um, and then started reading various books by behavioural economists, um, in particular, I suppose, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely, which is a very good read, and then, of course, what was perhaps my kind of Road to Damascus moment, uh, which was reading Nudge by uh, Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein, which I suppose encapsulated quite a lot of the thoughts and insights that many of us in advertising had already had and in, instinctively believed, but hadn't really had the vocabulary or perhaps the confidence to give voice to up to that point. Because you're talking about a, a bias against subjectivism in, in that, you know, engineers design things trains to go faster, but, but actually there's no Wi-Fi on the train, and if there was, we might like it to go slower. Yes, funnily enough, I, I, I suppose around the time I discovered my interest in this, I also became a regular commuter. And what intrigued me is that um, there seem to be particular groups of people, it may be lawyers in the case of politics, it may be engineers in the case of railways or large parts of business, who seem to have a stranglehold over problem definition in many ways. And broadly speaking, there's a wonderful American phrase, to a man with a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. That actually the person you give the, the, um, the job to defines problems in terms that suit their own imagined solution. So a lawyer will see solutions in terms of legislation, an engineer will see solutions in terms of, well, lots of engineering perhaps. They may, by the way, be perfectly right. They may, you know, this may not be wrong at all. What intrigues me, though, though, is how infrequently, particularly when you consider how simple and inexpensive they may be, people look to simple psychology. So it seemed to me more f- acceptable to spend perhaps you know, £20 million making trains 3% more punctual than it was, for example, to make stations a pleasant place to wait. So something that had a numerical value attached, like punctuality, for example, or speed or journey time, seemed to get a huge amount of attention, whereas something that was difficult to express in numerical terms, for example, how nice the station is, broadly speaking, something subjective like that, now seemed to actually get neglected. Now, my view was that if you accept, as most economists do who aren't Marxists, that value is subjective, why would you spend disproportionately more time and money looking to solve problems in, uh, with real stuff or with absolute metrics rather than actually asking what do people really, really value deep down and how can we create more of it. And you showed that lovely slide of the redesigning of the square shreddy in the box to being a diamond shreddy. Yes. And, and, you know, one box actually containing squares and diamonds. The combo pack. Yeah, absolutely. You know, why is that an important illustration of subjectivism. It's a very, very funny illustration because, of course, nothing has been done to the product itself. It's simply been rebranded. The shreddy, which has always been square by being presented side-on, is now rebranded as the new improved diamond shreddy. Now, actually, it's a very extreme case. Normally, 
you know, improvement goes hand in hand. There's a product improvement and some perceptual improvement. This case is just a fantastically funny case that actually you can generate huge affection and interest and indeed value in a product by doing nothing other than depicting it in a new way. So, um, I mean, there's a a wonderful phrase I describe poetry, which I think is poetry is when we make new things familiar and familiar things new. And uh, this is a pretty good example, although I probably wouldn't stretch the definition of poetry that far. But it's a one, wonderful case of using creativity to make a completely familiar thing somehow completely new and exciting without doing anything to it at all. Now, that, you could say, is a really annoying habit of admin, which is all we're doing is uh, adding sizzle without actually improving the sausage. On the other hand, if you look at it from an environmental standpoint, the more we can create value which is actually... You know, involves neurons and photons rather than involving atoms, uh, the better off we'll be. And it seems to me that one of, one of the challenges facing the world is how you can get people to value things more highly, um, even when they contain remarkably little material stuff. In that case, can you sort of measure human psychology? Isn't that the, the problem? Because it relates, what you're saying relates hugely to the problem in economics at the moment, that it may have relied too long as a discipline on mathematical models and not on realistic perceptions of how humans work. This is a really interesting question, which is to what extent can human preference be numerically expressed? Um, Now, the Austrian school of economists, I understand, refused to use maths because they argued that since they were concerned with the science of human preference or praxeology, and human preference could not be expressed in numerical terms, it simply wasn't reducible to that, it was completely wrong to use mathematics. Now, interestingly, what certainly seems to be true is that not much in human preference or value is proportionate. Now, there's some research you can look at which actually suggests that Um, people who haven't actually grown up with mathematics, if you go to obscure Amazonian tribes where they don't really have a number system, their concept of number seems to be logarithmic. So if you give a group of those tribesmen one grain of rice or whatever it may be, or one seed, and nine seeds, and ask him to place in the middle a pile of size equidistant between the two, a Westerner would put five seeds in the pile. Actually, the Amazonian, who isn't familiar with basic numbers, puts three. So his view is that actually halfway between one seed and nine seeds is three seeds. So there's clearly something going on in in, in humanity where numbers don't quite gel with our own perception of things. Now, I'll give you an interesting case where you could argue that someone with a mathematical background is actually stupider than someone without. And if you watch the programme Deal or No Deal... It always interests me that my friends who work in banking get very annoyed because the people actually accept a deal from the bank which is statistically suboptimal. You know, the expected outcome statistically might be £9,000 and they accept six. And these people sneer and go, what foolish people they are. Actually, the people themselves may be right. Two things. One, the bankers aren't factoring in the value of regret and the cost of regret. That if you walk away having been offered £7,000 with only 20 to become the butt of ridicule of your friends, um, then actually that will plague you for the rest of your life. And it's worth taking a cut to avoid the risk of that. Secondly, of course, what the mathematical people are assuming is that £10,000 brings you twice as much pleasure as £5,000, which probably isn't true. 
Money might have a diminishing marginal utility, but certainly you won't be rendered twice as happy by getting £20,000 as you are by getting ten. Now, the people playing deal or no deal seem to understand that instinctively, whereas the people working in financial services don't. They live in a world where £20,000 is twice as good as ten. And so, yeah, it does seem to me that the obsession we have... Uh, both in organisations and, of course, with government and targets, in actually classifying every problem numerically before attempting to solve it, is actually misrepresenting problems and actually depicting them in completely inhuman terms. And and there's one short story that illustrates that, uh, isn't there, Rory, which is the difference between people's attitudes to yachts and caravans. Again, a lovely slide where, where in fact, you you quoted uh, that, that quote that someone said, uh, you, you know, a yacht was a prison on which you were likely to drown. That's uh, Dr Johnson, who's pretty good on most things. It always intrigued me that when you look at the human value system and the way we value things, as I've said, it isn't strictly numerical, and therefore attaching numerical measures to things isn't great. So I would argue, for example, that £6 billion to reduce the journey time from Paris from 3 hours 30 to 2.50... I'm not sure that's a, you know, I'm not sure even that the human brain really notices the greater speed. Certainly, if you provided on, onboard entertainment, you could probably achieve the same effect at perhaps 5% of the cost. But entertainment and how enjoyable the journey is and perception of duration is not made into a target in the way that actual duration is. And so engineers, you know, perhaps obsess about reality, to be absolutely honest whereas reality is actually not necessarily the thing you need to improve. Um, but there, there's, there's also this case, as you said, with, if you look at the way people value things, they tend to value things that are expensive. You know, I'm not sure how much pleasure anybody gets from expensive yacht ownership, to be honest, but mentally we're programmed to look at expensive or rare things with veneration, and similarly to look at things that are abundant. So there's a really interesting human bias, which is undoubtedly scarcity value, which is things like gold, which are pretty useless, we insanely value because of their rarity. Now, this to me seems to lead to some unfortunate human biases where the most efficient product in a category tends to become cheap um, and therefore tends to become slightly... um, Declasse or slightly unfashionable. So two examples would be coach travel and frozen food. Frozen food, by some measure, is the most effective way of, of uh, storing food, avoiding food waste, preserving nutrients, and so on. Unfortunately, because it's quite cheap to buy frozen food, people think that fresh frozen food must be better and more upmarket. So the assumption that the more expensive is better uh, would also affect, for example, coach travel. Coach travel, because it's the cheapest form of travel, becomes slightly stigmatised as a result. And I think there's a really interesting marketing challenge to get us to value what is efficient rather than what is laborious. Why do we, for example, somehow prize a handmade Turkish carpet more highly than the machine-made one, when, to be absolutely honest, what we're valuing there is the suffering that's gone into its production? Rory, you seem to be saying in this Cambridge Judge Business School Leadership Seminar, Life Lessons from One of Ad's Leading Men, that that actually a lifetime has taught you we really still don't understand human psychology and a lot of the way in which business makes its decisions isn't quite right. I I think we do understand... First of all, I think instinctively we probably understand it far better. um, We have a far better instinctive understanding of human psychology than our vocabulary allows us to express. Um, 
And so that's one thing, which I think that, you know, one of the reasons why behavioral economics is so exciting in advertising is it gives us an academic framework on which to pin some of our findings and indeed, you know, a kind of verifiable test matrix where we can continue to learn more about what disproportionately affects people's valuation of things and their decision making. You know, I think we've created a business culture that's so nu numerically driven, particularly after the invention of the spreadsheet, that it's actually created a mode of thinking that's actually at one remove from the way people actually think, feel and act. Rory Sutherland, thank you very much indeed for talking to the Cambridge Judge Business School podcast series today. Your leadership seminar, Life Lessons from One of Ad's Leading Men. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you very much.